us to make sure that we open our Bibles with the right attitude. As I've been reflecting on our approach to the Word of God, the Lord was impressing upon my heart this morning just the immensity of the privilege that we have to have this Word. You think of the, the hymns that we sing that often move us to tears. And what is it in that? It's the biblical truth that's doing that. I was thinking of Jonathan Edwards opening up this word and preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God and 500 people being converted through the Spirit using the word. We can think of George Whitfield going to the coal mines, opening up this book, and proclaiming the truth, and men coming out of the coal mines with black faces, and you could see where the streams of tears were flowing because it was wiping the coal away because they were exposed to this book. Looking at the life of George Mueller, in his autobiography, one of the things that, that convicted me is that he, he talked about how he was convicted that he often loved books about the Bible more than he actually loved the Word of God. But this is a powerful word. Do we open this book and say, here's just another book among books? Do we realize that it is the powerful word of God? And do we approach it as such? We can think of the, the story of the, the great church father Augustine. He's sitting in a garden in his sins. And he hears children playing a game saying, Tole lege, tole lege, which means take up and read, take up and read. And he opens this book to the book of Romans and he reads the word of God and is converted there's no other book that can do this it convicted me years ago to see a group of believers in China they were opening up boxes and there's bibles in these boxes and they're taking these books and they're holding it like this with tears in their eyes because of the preciousness of this book. And for so many of us as Christians, it becomes a common thing. But this is what James is addressing in this section. How do we listen to, how do we hear, and how do we respond to the word of God knowing that it is in fact the word of God? Not words of men. Men inspired by God. And with that in mind, let us open up to the book of James, chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 21 today.
Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Let us pray. Father, what a privilege. To open up your word. Father, I confess that on a daily basis I do not approach your word as I should. Convict us of this. Help us to see how wonderful this word is and how you have provided it for us freely in this country. Father, we ask that you would send down your spirit and help me preach your word in a way that is worthy of you and help us to receive your word with meekness this day that we would be changed by it. In your son's name we pray, amen. We saw last week that there are certain characteristics required for us to hear the word in a way that produces righteousness. As Christians, our desire is to produce righteousness because we want to please God. We desire to do what is right in his eyes. And as we saw in verse 19, these characteristics include an eagerness to hear the word of God. A slowness to speak and being slow to anger. And I made the point that James is addressing the issue of pride, the sin of pride. Pride manifests itself by a slowness to hear. The the proud man does not want to hear. The only time he will listen is if he can learn something so that he can talk more. But he doesn't want to be taught. And he does not want to submit to what he hears. And also the proud man desires to speak more than he desires to learn. He only listens to respond not to learn. And lastly, the proud man is quick to anger. He is easily provoked. And he is even angered at the truth of God's word. And such pride prevents us from hearing the word of God and producing righteousness. So James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So if we have an eagerness to hear the word and we keep our mouths closed long enough to actually hear it and we don't get angry at what we hear and thus reject it, then we actually hear what the word of God says. Now once we hear the word of God, we have two choices. Either we can reject it or we can receive it or or accept it. And let me say at this point that the word of God must guide 
our lives. Dear friends, you and I must be Bereans. Do you remember the, the Bereans in Acts 17? They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with all eagerness. In examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. This is an example to us. They received the word with all eagerness. They didn't just hear it with all eagerness. They received it with all eagerness. And they knew that Paul and Silas were mere men. So they searched the scriptures daily to see if they, what they were being taught was true. You ought to be eager to hear the word preached and taught but your eagerness to obey the word actually drives you to go home and look at the text and study for yourself and say, is what this man teaching actually correct? Because you're not just eager to follow a teacher, you are eager to know truth and receive that. But now how do we receive the word? And what exactly does that mean? Verse 21, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. The word received means to react favorably to. It means to accept. So once we are eager to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, we actually hear the word. And once we hear the word, our duty is to accept it as true, to receive it. You, you are not to hear this word neutrally. And you could care less whether or not it's true. If God has said it, it is true. Dear friends, it does not matter what scientists say. We don't question the truthfulness of the Bible because a, a mere man with a degree in science questions it. Is Christianity anti-science? Absolutely not. But mere men with limited understanding do not get to determine whether or not what God says is true. As Christians, we ought to love science. But, but science is, is man trying to understand what God has done. And then we flip the script and say, well, now we don't believe there's a God. We don't believe what the Bible says because we know a fraction of what God has done. What idolatry of the human mind. What Charles Darwin saw on his voyage has no bearing on whether or not Genesis is true history. The, the, the folly of some and even great theologians who would say, well, well you know, evolution is just so overwhelmingly true now that, that if we're going to have a credible faith, we must deny the count in Genesis. What folly. And by the way, there are many scientists who believe the Bible is true. But guess what? That is irrelevant. 
Because we don't need men to affirm what God says. And it does not matter what is acceptable to our culture. We don't question the truthfulness of the Bible because our culture is offended by truth. Why are so many churches embracing homosexuality? When the Bible clearly says that any sexual relationship outside of marriage is sin, and that marriage is between one man and one woman, and not only that, but there are explicit passages that, that, that condemn homosexuality, yet churches and Christians are questioning the truthfulness of God's word as it pertains to this. Why? Well, some say we're not actually questioning the truthfulness of Scripture. We're just saying that the Scripture address this. Dear friends, if we address what is absolutely, I mean, if we question what is absolutely true, what is clearly true, then we are questioning the truthfulness of the word. We don't need to question the biblical view on male headship because our culture is filled with angry feminists. Let them be offended. We don't need to question the truth of Paul forbidding women to be pastors because there are women who claim but with all their heart that God has called them to the pastoral ministry. We don't need to question the truth that there are only two genders because our culture makes up a new gender every single day. And we don't need to question the truth that, that if you are born, born a boy, you cannot become a girl just because boys want to become girls. We don't need to question the truth that abortion is murder. Because our culture is filled with people who literally fight for the right to kill babies. Do we get the point? And why are churches compromising truth and Christians compromising truth in these areas? It is, is it because they are passionately persuaded that, the, that these things are true and they want the whole world to know? Is that it? I doubt it. I'm convinced that most of these issues... With most of these issues, the only reason why churches are embracing them is because they are pushed so hard in our culture. And I'm convinced that if our culture pushed in the opposite direction, those churches would push in the opposite direction as well. What is this? Making the word of God submit to what our culture desires to be true. I was listening to something by Vody Bakum the other day, and he's talking about how every sermon on homosexuality starts with like an apology. Apologizing for the truth. Remember what I said about this word, the preciousness of this word, the power of this word. Again, this is not just another book with man's opinion. This is not one truth 
among many. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. Human instruments were used to write the Bible, but these men were inspired by God. Thus, all Scripture is the Word of God, and as the Word of God, it is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. And it is infallible. Therefore, when we hear this Word, our duty is to receive it and accept it as true. But now there are some things that prevent us from receiving the word. And notice that before James tells us to receive the word, what does he say? He says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. To put away means to take off. Moo points out that the word connotes the idea of removing clothes. And the imagery is applied metaphorically in the New Testament to the stripping off of pre-Christian lifestyle from the believer. So we are to take off filthiness and rampant wickedness like we would take off a jacket or a coat. And filthiness can be translated as moral filth. The word filth is used to remind us of the the disgusting nature of sin. Your sin is not a badge of honor. Something that you walk around with and be proud about. Your sin is like a disgusting, filthy coat that you should be embarrassed to have on. That's what this word is indicating. And the idea behind rampant wickedness is an abundance of evil. We, we have an abundance of evil. Moose says that James warns believers that putting off sin involves a fight against a foe that takes many different forms. Like an army with many soldiers, sin attacks us persistently and in many guises. Knock down one sin and another quickly arises to take its place in the spiritual conflict in which we are engaged. So as believers, we are to take off, strip off our sins. Strip off those sins which characterized us as unbelievers but that have no business characterizing us as believers. We are new creatures, no longer enslaved to sin. We can strip those things away. And we must be aware that the evil we need to strip off is abundant. The moment you think you are done with sin, another sin pops up. And then you don't feel any sin in your life. And guess what? You're proud. And that's sin. Abundant. Of wickedness. But we are to strip away these things. And this language is often used in Scripture cast off the works of darkness, Romans 13. Put off your old self, Ephesians 4. 
And in the New Testament, where when we see this concept of putting off, we sometimes have a command to put on something else. Put off your old self. Put on your new self, Ephesians 4. But James does not do that here. He says, put off your moral filth and evil and receive with meekness the implanted word. So usually when we see putting off and putting on, we are putting off sin and putting on righteousness. But Mu points out that in this case, James wants us to focus attention on a more basic issue than the adopting of a new code of behavior. He's putting the emphasis on the influence of God's word in producing that new kind of behavior. So instead of saying, put on righteousness, put on new behavior, he says, receive the word. Knowing that meek reception of the word will lead to righteous living, will lead to the new man. Now, why is putting off sin a prerequisite to receiving the word with meekness? To understand this, we need to understand what it means to receive the word with meekness. The word for meekness carries the idea of gentleness or being even-tempered. And perhaps the best word to use here is humility. MacArthur says the idea here is selfless receptiveness of putting self as well as sins aside. W.E. Vine describes the word as the temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing and without resisting. Now, with that understanding of meekness in mind, we must understand that we will never receive the word with meekness while we are in sin. Never. Our sins will not allow us to receive the word with selfless receptiveness. Does that sound like sin to you? Selfless receptiveness? Sin will not lay itself aside so that the word of God can be received. If we are in sin, our sins will not allow us to put our self-will aside. Our sins will not allow us to see God's dealings with us as good and therefore receive the word without disputing or resisting. If you believe, dear friends, that you can live in your sins and read the Bible in a productive way, you are sadly mistaken. When we are living in sin, we are biased. Our sins, in a manner of speaking, will protect themselves from the word. We ignore those passages when we're living in sin, don't we? 
And if we can't ignore them any longer because they eat at our conscience, we start doubting the truthfulness of those passages or trying to distort the meaning. Does this really say what I think it says? Perhaps there is another way to look at this. And after that, the next step is to deny the truth of Christianity altogether. I once heard Dr. Lloyd-Jones say something along these lines. People who continue to practice a sin, knowing that it's wrong, will often change their theology to accommodate for their sin. And why do they do this? They have to, because if they are going to live with some kind of sanity of mind, with their conscience driving them crazy, they have to either cast off the sin or change their theology. And so sadly, some of us have seen this played out, haven't we? A professing Christian who, who seemed to be, a, to be a solid Christian somehow enters into a relationship with an immoral person. It happens. A man charmed by, by the mesmerizing beauty of a non-Christian woman. She's irresistible to his flesh. Her beauty and charm lure him into a relationship he knows is wrong. He knows it. And that relationship leads to fornication. And now he has tasted the sin of fornication. And his conscience is going haywire. Because he knows he's wrong. His conscience is driving him crazy. So he knows he must make a decision. Cast off this sin. Or quiet my conscience some other way. But at this point. He loves that sin. It is dear to him. His emotions are, 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 are wrapped around that sin. So it's not an option for him to let that go. So what next? He finds a different way to quiet his conscience. And the next thing you know, this once Solid, professing Christian man is questioning whether or not the Bible is clear on fornication. He can't even read simple truth, things that are crystal clear to a four-year-old. He can no longer understand. Maybe he plays with the meaning of the Greek. Well, some can translate it this way or some can translate it that way. Or maybe he just tries to discredit certain parts of the Bible. And he starts coming up with all these phony arguments. And you just say to him, come on, man, you really don't believe that, do you? There's no way you actually believe that. But he refuses to cast off that sin. 
So eventually, he is left with a heretical, watered-down version of Christianity where truth is whatever you want it to be. Or maybe he's bold enough to just cast off Christianity altogether. Say, I no longer believe that book. I no longer believe that old book written by men. There's a meme about this on the internet, and it just captures it perfectly. Where a man says, oh, I can't believe that Christianity or the Bible is true anymore. And the meme says, what he really means is I want to sleep with my girlfriend. But how true is that? Seemingly solid Christians denying what is clearly true in order to protect their sins. Seemingly solid Christians refusing to be corrected by the word of God because of moral filth and abundant evil that blinds them and makes them unreceptive to the word of God. And while this is happening, everyone else can see it except for them. They believe that they are just being sincere in their quest for truth. I'm just being a good person, wondering if this Bible is really true. But their sin is blinding them. And and things they, they, they once clearly thought were true and even taught others as true is no longer clear anymore. Difference rejecting one part of Scripture leads to rejecting another part of Scripture, rejecting, leading to re- rejecting all of Scripture in total. If you do not strip off your sins, you will not receive the word with meekness. You are being a fool if you think you can live in any sin, that you can just dwell and live in that sin and and be a good Christian reading the word. You are biased if you are allowing that sin to reign in your body. You, You can no longer see truth correctly. You are blinded. And there are consequences. If you do not strip off your sins in order to receive the word with meekness, you will eventually strip off Christianity in an attempt to live in sin with a clear conscience. Beware of that. Or in the words of John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you're living according to the flesh and reading the Bible, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Dear friends, if you want to profit from the Word, you must do whatever it takes. To strip off your sins. This is not a light matter. Stop playing with your sins. 
Some of you, even right now, are flirting with destruction. You are living in sin in such a way that at any moment you are going to start denying clear truth to protect your sins. Backsliding in this way is like, it's like falling down an icy mountain, Spurgeon said. You just let yourself fall down and say, I'll catch myself right down there. But once that momentum starts, you don't know where you're going to stop, if you're going to stop at all. It is painful to repent sometimes. Sometimes it is embarrassing to repent. It can be painful to end sinful relationships. There are actual emotions involved on both sides. It's painful. But guess what else is painful? To cut off and pluck out, as our Lord says. That is repentance. Yes, it hurts. But cut off and pluck out. Why? Because it's better to have that pain and to enter into life with only one hand than it is to go to hell with both hands firmly attached. Al Martin put it this way, talking about those who do not deal with sins the way they should. He says you just occasionally have a little whimper in the closet when your conscience gets so active that you can't live with it anymore. You whimper and cry and ask God for a little help and then you go right back with your hand and your eyeballs firmly attached. You leave them attached. He says occasionally you take a knife and you you scratch your wrist a little bit or you scratch around your eyeballs a little bit, but you do not cut off and pluck out. You say, Lord, I I can't do it. I'm trying. No, you're not trying. You're refusing to cut off and pluck out. Thinking that perhaps if I just leave my hand attached this time, I'll be able to resist. I'll be strong enough next time, Lord. Lord, I'll be strong enough next time to be alone with my boyfriend or girlfriend and not do anything I shouldn't do. I'll be strong enough next time. I'll be strong enough next time to browse the internet by myself and and not look at things I shouldn't look at. I'll be strong enough next time, Lord. Cut off and pluck out. That is the reason for that. You do not play with your sins. You cut off and you pluck out. Dear friends, strip away your moral filth and abundance of evil so that you can actually receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Implanted is a word for planting a seed in the ground. It carries the idea of being deeply fixed or set within something. This is what the word of God does to us. It it takes root in our heart, as it were. And the vines branch out and produce fruit in all areas of our lives. This is the word of God. 
Moose says the command to accept the word implanted to you is not a command to unbelievers to be converted, but to believers to allow the word to influence them in all parts of their lives. That the word of God would influence every area of our lives. The word of God is not just for how we behave in church. It affects every area of our lives. And notice he says that the word is able to save your souls. Now in this context, James is not referring to regeneration or conversion. He's not talking about salvation in the beginning. Here he is referring to salvation in the future sense. Or as Moo would say, the believer's ultimate deliverance from sin and death. So in verse 18, James tells us that the word is used in regenerating us. And here, he is saying that that the word will save us in the final judgment. In other words, the word is essential for us entering the Christian life through regeneration. It is essential in our Christian journey of sanctification. And as we keep receiving the word until our death, it leads us to glorification. There is no part of the Christian life when the word of God is no longer essential. The word is for the new believer. And the word is for the most seasoned saint. John Owen said, in the divine scriptures there are shallows and there are deeps. There are shallows for the lamb to walk and there are deeps for the elephant to swim. And what he means by that is this. If you are five years old, there are things in this word that you can understand. But if you have been a a theologian, a professional, full-time theologian for 80 years, there are still things in this word that you cannot wrap your mind around fully. For no Christian, at any point in time, does the word become irrelevant. We never outgrow the word. And if you reach a point in your Christian walk where you feel that you no longer need the word, it is not because you are wise. It is probably because you are casting off, you are not casting off sin, and so you are not meek, and you don't want to receive the word anymore. The meek man, the, the humble man, understands his desperation for the word. And it's not that the word keeps us saved. That's not what James is saying. He's saying that the true Christian will receive the word until the end. That the false convert will profess faith for a while and through a refusal to put off sin and receive the word, he'll eventually cast off the word. Proving that he never truly was a Christian. But the true convert will receive the word with meekness, which will lead to righteous living and his continuation to receive the word, which, which, which makes him continue to produce righteousness, is the evidence that he has a sincere faith, which is a saving So, dear friends, I ask you all today, are you putting off sin? 
and receiving the word with meekness. Are there sins in your life that you are refusing to let go? Believing that somehow you're going to be okay in every other area. This is just one little sin in my life, one little area of my life. Dear friends, if that is you, confess and repent before that sin poisons your entire life because that's what it will do. And you never notice yourself slipping backwards. You never notice it. In the heat of the moment, you, you never notice it. It's like what people say about a frog. If you, if you put him in water and, and boil it, if you put him in boiling water, he, he'll jump out. But if you put him in the water and let it boil, he'll stay in there. This is, how it, this is how it is with us. Do not believe you're wise enough and strong enough to refuse to cast off sins and yet still thinking that you are meekly receiving the word. Examine your hearts, dear friends. Examine your hearts. Perhaps some of you are truly saved, but you are currently allowing sin to reign in your bodies, repent at this very moment. And maybe there are some here today who, who are not receiving the word with meekness because you don't really belong to Christ. If that is you, dear friend, trust in him for salvation. He is mighty to save. Mighty to save. Stop living in your sin. You, you won't be missing anything. Turn to Christ and repent before it is too late. And may the Lord help us all to each and every day cast off every sin. Just cast them off every single day and accept the true word with all humility. And may the word take root in our hearts and produce fruit in every area of our lives. Now what we looked at here today is very similar to what we saw last week, but, but I think there is a progression in what James is saying. In order for us to even listen to the word of God, to even hear it at all. We, we must be eager to hear. We must be slow to speak. And we must be slow to anger. Otherwise, we won't even listen. But, but merely being willing to listen is not enough. We need to receive the word with meekness. Accept it as true. Not just listen, but accept it as true. And the only way to receive the word with meekness is to strip off our sins. And finally, the evidence that we have truly accepted or received the word is that we obey it. So here's a three-step process. We must listen to the word. We must accept the word as true. We must receive the word. And then we must obey the word. We must be 
as James will say next week, doers of the word. And whether or not we do the word is the ultimate proof of whether or not we really receive it. We will save that for next week. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word and for your spirit. Oh, Lord, you have used mere men through your word and your spirit to turn the world upside down. To save thousands of people. Your word has ushered many into your presence. What a precious word. What a privilege we have to to, to sit here and to hear your word, Father. May we be receptive of it. Oh, Lord, change us. Humble us. That we would indeed be quick to hear, eager to hear, and slow to speak, and slow to anger. That each and every day we would truly be casting off our sins and receiving with meekness. This word which is like a seed in our hearts that grows and produces fruit in every area of our lives. Father, help us to be fruitful Christians. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.